0: Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The
1: title of the book, "The Love That Shouted for Joy," and the author is Pamela Howland Westcott. And Pamela joins us now along with her spouse, Kathleen Carspecken. They both join us on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Pamela.
2: Hello, Steve.
1: Hi, Kathleen.
3: Hi, Steve.
1: Well, this is uh, very, well, I'd, I'd have to say, this, is, this kind of book just kind of opens the door, doesn't it, from into your lives. And the magic, I guess the magic date was back in what year when Massachusetts passed the big law? Yes, 2004. 2004. They made it legal for persons of the same sex to get married. That's right. And they were one of uh, they were one of the leaders, right? Yes, the first state. Oh, really? The first state. All right, the very first state. So, now we have more many more states and we even have nations, don't we? <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> yeah, other countries in the world. Right. Now, let me uh let's kind of find out why you wrote this book. Um in fact, uh before we do that, let me just kind of share your thoughts in general. So before we get into why you did it, just to kind of give everyone an understanding that the love that shouted for joy is a series of vignettes scattered in space and time about the complications that arise when two people decide to marry. The fact that the partners are are of the same sex is only one piece of the intricate landscape that spans over 30 years and tells a story culminating in a backyard ceremony during the historic summer of 2004 when, of course, we just mentioned Massachusetts became that first state So, uh, to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples. So why did you decide to write this book, Pamela?
2: Well, the morning that we learned that same-sex marriage had been made legal, we saw the headline, Free to Marry, and we really couldn't believe it. We saw these pictures of couples who had already been married um, since the, I think they started issuing the, wasn't it midnight? Yeah. Yeah. They started issuing the um, licenses at midnight. And it, it was really um, something for us to take in. And I was traveling for work that day. I took a cab to the airport, and my driver had the radio on about gay couples lining up at City Hall around the state. And he said, so now all those gay people think they can get married like us. And I, that hurt. It was I didn't tell him I was gay. Um, and, but I think that you know gradually, over the week, we realized this really was a choice that we could make and um it was it was a process we had to make the decision that we that we could do this too and kathleen has a story about her workplace
3: i work for a human rights organization steve and when i went into work my boss had bought a card with balloons on it and chocolates and flowers and she was beaming from ear to ear and and it's like the people around me were more excited than i was i think it was uh, Somewhat of a shock to us, maybe because we were older, and um, sometimes it takes people reacting around you to make you help help you feel your feelings about something like this.
1: Now, Pamela, you're going to tell us about your neighbors, Pat and Dan.
2: Yes, we well, you know, we started to tell people that we had decided to get married. We were going to have the mar the wedding in our backyard, and we decided to invite 12 neighbors. So um, Pat and Dan live across the street. They they said yes, they'd like to come. Um, and then after, after we got married, we discovered um, one of our other neighbors told us that there was a website called Know Thy Neighbor, and that people had signed a petition um, that was uh, the Catholic Church had, I guess, passed around, and um, and so Pat and Dan ended up on the petition. <laughs> they they had signed the petition after they came to our wedding. So we were a little chagrined by that, but we also acknowledged that you know it's a process for everyone to and and that they had the experience of coming and and sharing in our wedding.
3: We, we had, also had another yeah. neighbor who had a completely different. Reaction. She came to Pam and me one day when we were working in the yard, and she said, I need to talk to you. And um, we were a little worried about what she was going to say. We've, we've had a little bit up and down relationship with these folks. And so she, we said, come on up to, on the deck. We'll have some a glass of water. And she murmured to herself, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And we couldn't imagine what she was going to say to us and what she said was I don't usually invite myself to people's parties, but I wonder if you'd invite my children to your wedding because I want them to know that it's all right for people, all different kinds of people, to love each other and to show their love by getting married. So that was a shock in a really good way, and uh, they did indeed come.
1: Who does the book appeal to, Pamela?
2: Well, I think that anyone who's planning a wedding or has planned a wedding could relate to these stories. Um, I think that you know there there's a universal um, experience, and that there are more similarities than differences, really. And the more that we can move towards mutually understanding, you know, our similarities, I think the better. And I think that that was part of why I I wrote the book. I wanted people to have a story that you know to be able to see what a gay wedding is like, I think the book appealed to people who are planning a wedding or have planned a wedding. It also is really stories about life around the time of of a wedding and um I don't know, Kathleen, what do you think you've read the book? <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, it's very universal, I think it it appeals to that audience as well as people who are just interested in in different ways to live life Pam's had a very interesting past I think and has lived several lifetimes in one and it's it's also very um there's a lot of humor in this book it's fun it's so it's it's short pithy and people can shake their nod their heads and say I can relate to that in in almost every chapter And
1: Pam you were married before
3: Yes I was
2: um, one of the stories that I wrote about was time that I spent on an island in Maine um in my early twenties and um I married my high school boyfriend and then later we separated and um but that's part of my past and I think you know, one of the things one of the challenges of writing this book is being able to write about the pieces of my life um, without worrying that you know it has to be a story that everyone expects to read and and I think that's that's part of the challenge of being a writer you know to just be able to include the complexity of the stories that are part of your of real life
1: and you wrote that chapter called Camping with Kathleen well, that was a challenge right yeah,
2: that was a challenge because, you know, writing about Kathleen, I was afraid um that she might not be happy with what I chose to say. I mean, I had to tell certain things like the story of the chipmunk <laughs> when she went camping as a kid or, you know, there there are things that um I included that I I think she felt okay about yeah. There's another chapter about the in-laws, and you know, people have told us they relate to those chapters, um, and so I think, but it but it's a challenge to to tell the truth. <laughs> so,
1: and what about the title? Why the love that shouted
4: for joy?
2: Well, people have assumed, you know, that we were talking about our love that was shouting for joy. And in fact, at the end of the wedding, um, we had 100 guests in our yard. And when we were pronounced married, a shout rang out from them. And Kathleen had said, you know, sometimes we need to hear other people affirming something to really hear it. And I think, I think that that's true. It really sunk in when we heard that shout.
3: Do there's a, there's another uh, piece to the title too. It's um, back in the 30s and 40s with Oscar Wilde and the whole group of early gay people who were ri- writing, maybe in veiled tones, but but homosexuality was referred to as the love that dared not speak its name. So we thought the double entendre of having the, the literal shout at the wedding and then knowing and calling this love the love that shouted for joy it was kind of a a literary reference if you, if you will <laughs> so it's kind of interesting
1: we have time to uh, share another vignette or another reason why uh, Pamela do you want to uh, add to it okay this would be
2: a story about let's see there's one short chapter called i'm trapped I'm screwed, my life is over um this This happened when our dentist um, I visited the dentist about a month after we got married, and he broke into song this is a this is a song by meat loaf um, and he said, "Oh my God, that first month after we were married and <laughs> He was, you know, we were kind of exhausted from planning a family event of this sort and including inviting our neighbors and and our colleagues from work and friends and so forth. Um, so on the one hand, we were exhausted, so tired that we could barely drive. And on the other hand, I was having this creative energy that had I had started writing the book. So I guess he just confirmed the fact that, you know, Marriage is a challenge and um, even when you've lived with someone before you get married, it's, um, you know, there's so many things that come up when you have a wedding ceremony and um, I don't know, it just, it it made me feel good that our dentist could relate (laughs) and and that he could even break into song about it.
0: How about your mom?
2: And yeah, my mom had... You know, when we told her we were getting married, she said, why do you have to do that? And um, she ended up coming and telling my siblings, I have a a sister and two brothers, that everyone should make a toast. Um, And she made a toast. And she made reference to when I had bicycled cross country. And she said, now Pam is taking her place on the road. Um, And it was just, it was really meant a lot to me, and the fact that we could have that wedding when we had it, when she was in her 80s, but she was able to stand up and give a toast, really meant a lot to me.
1: We've been listening to Pamela Howland-Westcott and Kathleen Karsbecken. Uh, They got married back in the historic summer of 2004 in Massachusetts, when Massachusetts became the first state to allow same-sex marriages, and now she's written her book, The Love That Shouted for Joy. Pamela, tell us how to get your book.
2: Yes, you can get it on Amazon.com or iUniverse.com. On Amazon, you can see reviews, which, and certainly leave reviews if you'd like, and so that's one plus of going there.
1: Thank you, Pamela, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. You're welcome. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, Kathleen.
3: You're welcome.
0: You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages.
4: Ready for the most current feel-good gossip? Then check out Daytime with Donna with your host, Donna Intercastle, and sidekick Nina Fry, Every Friday afternoon at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Donna is a charismatic market-driven entrepreneur who was part of the team that founded iVillage.com, which is the largest content-driven community for women today. Donna and Nina are here to empower you, motivate you, and encourage you in all aspects of your life. It's like Oprah on the radio, plus your chance to win great prizes, all the way up to a $500 Visa gift card. For more on Donna Intracasso, check out her website, introink.com, then join us for the show, Daytime with Donna, with your host, Donna Intracasso, and sidekick, Nina Fry, Friday afternoons at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Evermore. People have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Victor Frankel. The inspiration for the movie, Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And Talk TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection. With host Mary Simaluka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now these deep discussions are where they should be. In the hands of individuals. On the air with you. Talk Since Radio. The Meaning Connection. With your host, Mary Simaluka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vasley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 Central, on Toginet.com.
0: Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Teachers
1: Beyond the Law, How Teachers Change Their World. And the author is Oscar Weil. And Oscar joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Oscar. Hello. Yeah, this is Oscar. Great to have you with us, Oscar. Now, let me read what you've written about your book, and then we'll get into your background and uh, the different principles that you're espousing for the uh, teachers' union. You say this, Teachers Beyond the Law is the story of how teachers built their union by overcoming... What seemed to most legal, political, and education officials to be impenetrable barriers. The book describes how at crucial times, the author was able to use the help of politicians he worked with at the state capitol to negotiate strike settlements and thus obviate the necessity for judges to punish union leaders, including himself, for contempt of injunction. So you have really seen conflict, haven't you?
5: Yes. Uh, well, it began with, uh, you know, a situation where uh, teachers and other public employees, in fact, were uh, had been placed in what amounted to a straitjacket by uh, the culture and the law. Uh, there's no separate category, uh, of course, in the Constitution, you know, that provides... Uh, You know, for groups of people like teachers and other public employees to have fewer uh, rights under the Constitution, especially under the First and Fourteenth Amendments to the Constitution. So uh, teachers could be fired when I started teaching for joining a union or being involved in, in union activities. And, of course, if they went on strike, they were... You know, um, immediately subjected to court injunctions, and then if they didn't, they didn't, if they didn't observe the, you know, the injunction, they would be you know held in contempt and sometimes jailed. So that's where I began, and uh, I realized that uh, as soon as I started teaching that, uh, you know, teachers had to have the right to have a union. I mean, they couldn't meet their responsibilities to their students and to their own families unless they had some power to uh, you know to bargain their their own economic benefits and and uh, you know uh, and take care of working conditions for their kids. so that's about where we are right now.
1: What do you see as the most threatening problem to public schools today?
5: well it really began from my perspective um with a situation that's pretty much beyond our control or you know it's beyond it goes beyond you know what we were doing uh, about our rights i mean it began with uh you know in 1981 the uh you know the, uh, the Reagan assault on government and on uh, you know the most important factor, the the right to raise taxes, especially I mean uh, eliminating support for income taxes. I mean the income tax was the way that FDR, you know uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt in in the 30s. It's the way he rebuilt America with uh, by redistributing wealth from the top and uh creating all the the safety nets that uh even exist today. I mean we still talk about it, you know, but but that was a, an important move toward uh you know, establishing, you know, support for education. I mean we didn't get uh, we didn't get an income tax in Illinois until nineteen seventy but we had uh You know, milked all we could from property taxes and sales taxes and other kinds of taxes. We had to have a a means through the income tax to provide adequate support for schools. So I was a lobbyist at the time, and I recognized what was happening. Um, But Reagan really turned the country around, and he turned people against the income tax. So that really began, uh, you know, the the problems that we face today in education.
1: One of the themes in your book, you say, is a major effort is underway to weaken teachers' unions' right to bargain collectively.
5: Right. No doubt about it. You know, the, the people in power today, I mean, uh, you know, I'm, I don't want to be, I mean, I have to be political, but... Um, I think the Republican Party today is much different than it used to be, and I think it's opposed to uh, public education. I recently, heard uh, Matt Romney uh, talking to some, you know, prospective college students, and he told them the government they shouldn't look to the government for help. Well, that uh, to me that's very threatening. I mean, I'm. Uh, I'm sure he feels that the he feels less sympathy for um K 12 schools also because um education is a lifelong it's a lifelong experience. It begins like you um you were talking about preschool education. It took us years to get uh, recognition by the general public that um uh, We needed to uh, to begin to educate kids as soon as as soon as they were able to get to to school. So preschool education became a very important part of um, you know educating kids in a modern society.
1: You asked the question. I guess you can give us this answer to a question. How will reducing pension benefits for teachers affect education?
5: The pensions, of course, are a part of uh, an important part of a teacher's uh, economic benefits. I mean, it's it's um, when I was when I was recruited to teach, I was um, there were very few benefits, but um, the the prospect of a pension was um the most important benefit other than my immediate salary, so it was a fundamental part of uh, the cost of um uh, you know uh, of the most important part of cost of schools um teachers' salaries so um when i was um uh, when I was a lobbyist i remember um vividly when the governor reduced our the state's contribution to, uh, which is fixed by law in Illinois and probably other every other state, is fixed by law that uh, that the state has to match the teachers' contributions. They take the teachers' contribution from their checks automatically, and then uh, the law provides that the state is supposed to match those contributions. So when uh, when the governor reduced the contribution below the the level fixed by law, I recognized that as a, an immediate threat. So I talked my own people. I mean, they were reluctant to do it, but I finally got them to let me uh, sue the state. That was a long time. That was in 1971. So uh, I was able to do that, and uh, we got a we got an agreement from the comma attorney general of the of the state of Illinois that uh he would support you know um legislation to you know make up the um, the difference between what uh, the state uh, was contributing and what they should have contributed but um uh, then the governor vetoed the legislation so I sued the governor and uh, that finally went to the Illinois Supreme Court and the Supreme Court ruled that it had no ability to give us relief, that the only way we could get relief was through the legislature and the governor. So we were right back where uh, we began, except now we knew what what the problem was. We could not solve the problem without uh, political activity, without pressure on the legislature. So that began in 1970 well i said seventy one especially um seventy two was a was a date when the Supreme Court ruled but um that gradually over time the state contri- continued to not meet its obligations, and so now the whole system is threatened because we have an enormous deficit so um I don't know how we can meet that, uh, you know, that deficit. How we can eliminate that deficit um, uh, without the without um, increasing taxes? I mean, and and it has it has to be, it has to be by increasing the most progressive tax, um, the income tax. We've known for many many years that we can no longer support education. Uh, And, of course, pensions, which are a very important part of uh, teachers' compensation. We couldn't do that with income tax, and we couldn't do that with property tax and other taxes. We had to do it with income tax, with a progressive tax. So that's where we are today.
1: How do you see what's happened in Wisconsin, the... There's now uh, the I guess the teachers union uh, they don't have the right to collective bargaining anymore.
5: Well, they I I'm not sure exactly what's happened. Um, I I'm not sure what they can bargain about, but they don't have the right to strike. I know that. So there is no bargaining without the right to strike in the first place. I mean they they've been living on you know, a dreamland, I guess. You know, Wisconsin was a very progressive state, but, um, uh, today the Republican Party is not progressive anymore. At one time, it was. I mean, it was, um, it had some very progressive legislation supported by Republicans. I mean, uh, in, in terms of unions, um, the North Aguardia Act, which was, passed in 1932 um, co-sponsored by a, a Democrat North and a Republican uh, LaGuardia and uh, that uh, eliminated uh, the threat of court injunctions in effect it gave the right to strike for uh, um, private em- employees in private industry but teachers were uh, and other public employees were were excluded from that uh, from coverage of that law. I mean it was um uh, it was done by the courts, court interpretations. But and that's what I meant when I said uh, initially at the outset of, of our conversation that uh teachers and other public employees had been you know denied their first amendment and 14th amendment rights.
1: You don't see by
5: being excluded from coverage of uh, legislation like the North Aguardia Act.
1: And you claim, uh, one of the messages in your book that there's been no serious effort by the legislature or governors in the last thirty years to make better teacher training and higher qualifications of teachers a high priority.
5: Right. Well one of my first concerns when I became a union official and a lobbyist was um to improve teacher training to make that a primary focus and um and we, we did make some progress for a while um and, and in fact um it it began to be really effective um but then because of the fiscal problems of the state of Illinois and uh and as I said initially, the assault on the income tax—I mean, there—it became more and more difficult for schools to function, and so one way of saving money was to uh, and use the pension system. In fact, ironically, to uh, to give to uh, give teachers. Uh, you know, a way to retire early. So the idea of early retirement of teachers was one way of uh, saving money. So because you have a salary schedule in education, so every year a teacher's salary goes up and and, it becomes more expensive to keep older teachers on the job. So uh, the idea of... uh, of getting rid of the older teachers, the better trained and better qualified people so they could replace them with uh, teachers um, who had just graduated from college, people with no experience and um, less less training. I mean, a teacher, any teacher knows that uh, it takes several years. I mean, in my own... uh, situation. I think I was a better teacher after five years. Um, I continue to become a better teacher. Um, and most teachers will tell you that, you know, that it takes a long time to um, develop the ability to manage kids. I mean, it's something that nobody ever talks about. And it's one of the, probably the most important um, part about a teacher's work is, Managing the- managing the students and uh, anyway, when you uh, eliminate a a teacher who was in their fifties, which is what they were doing, they encouraged teachers when they were like fifty five they could retire as early as fifty five and quite a few of them did it so um i mean in my opinion, they were in the uh, you know a height of their power as a teacher when they're fifty five and they should have been doing everything they could to encourage them to remain in teaching. But now they were doing the opposite. So many of them did retire. I mean, I know that had an effect on um, on elementary school teachers. For example, teaching and reading, one of the most, most difficult of all subjects, teaching and reading. Um, they know a lot about how to teach. I mean, um, experienced teachers nowadays know a lot about how to teach reading. So, and uh, in, in effect, they did a lot of harm by uh, using um, by using the pension system to uh, give teachers incentive to retire early.
1: We've been listening to Oscar Weil. He is the author of his book Teachers Beyond the Law: How Teachers change their world. Oscar, tell us how to get your book.
5: Well, you can get my book by ordering it directly from me. Um, my, my my writing to me, my telephone number is 3217-521-0383. Um, 521-0383. Or you can order it through iUniverse.
1: Well, thank you, Oscar, for being with us on iUniverse Radio.
0: You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages.
4: Show me the money!
0: Okay, we will.
4: We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Togenet. Hey, moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats the show and Angie, check out her website, azmomominihats.com. She is a strong woman, she is powerful, she is wonderful, and she is valuable. Mom of Many Hats with Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network.
0: Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, a Prison
1: of Lies, and the author is Robert Thomas Doran, and Bob joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Bob. Hi, Steve. Hi. Well, great to have you with us. This is, as you put it, going to be a journey through madness, as you call it. It's uh, This is a very emotional book. It's your story, and but it does have a happy ending. We'll find out more about that later. You say this is a journey through madness beginning with the early predispositions to an accumulation of traumatic experiences to the final traumatic event which triggers full blown mental illness and finally the slow emergence out of that illness. Well that sentence in of itself is uh, extremely emotional sums it up very, very well, what this book is about. Uh, you say the book is the reflection of one man's struggle with mental illness, and uh, it's a graphic portrayal. Uh, it can be rather raw at times, correct?
6: Very raw. And I have to uh, just put this little adjunct on to everything you said, um, a little lawyerly kind of response. Um, I must say that that the book is a parody, Um, it's a a fiction, Um, I must say that because um, I had to rework it to uh, protect all of the real individuals who, this is not factual, I have to say it that way, okay? But based based
1: on a lot of your experiences
6: yes it's a fiction but it is it is definitely reflective of my experience yes that's a good way of saying it
1: and as you put it we all are vessels of our own experience and what you're trying to do is help some others who are going through similar kinds of experiences
6: exactly yes that's the whole purpose for writing the book not well not the whole purpose Uh, also you know, I think it will be invaluable as a guide for parents of troubled youths. Um, you don't—I don't think you necessarily have to have gone through or have a similar experience. Uh, I think it just, in reading it, I think it gains—you will gain appreciation for the difficulties that um, individuals, as they are developing towards maturity, can get into.
1: But you are a survivor, and that's what this book is about.
6: I absolutely am a survivor. Yes, I am.
1: And so there is hope, even when everything looks so dark. Uh, But why did you choose to write it in such a raw and profane style?
6: To be real. I needed to be be authentic to the experience. To write it in any other way would have been almost like candy-coating the experience. And... and, um, it, it, it certainly would not have done a good job of portraying the uh, trauma, the, the rawness of, of, of the experience.
1: Now, this book generated out of letters you wrote to a young lady?
6: That was the onset of the trauma, was um, having fallen in love with um, with a, a young girl. And um, I, I guess the best way of speaking about that is it was an unrequited love. I would say the experience and the book blossomed forth from that trauma.
1: So you were completely rejected?
6: Yes, and and the rejection rejection isn't um even comes doesn't even come close to what it actually felt like. It was more like um being trampled.
1: So com- you felt com- completely ridiculed?
6: uh yes but it's 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 beyond that it, it was like it was like being whittled down to the core um, um and and I'm not I'm not saying this to disparage anybody um talking about what the experience was like sure. for me
1: well and and that's what you were feeling it doesn't matter what anybody else was seeing or or uh, analyzing but what you were feeling was beyond even um, probably words
6: yeah, yeah, and it's it, and sometimes it was just um, you know done with innuendos or or, or rather um, inflections of the voice. I mean, you can uh, there's a way uh, one person can speak to another person just with the tone of their voice that that makes that other person realize how um, um, uh, contempt, uh, how much contempt that other individual is feeling for them.
1: So the main character uh, in the book is his name is
6: um, Thomas Doran.
1: Thomas, right? There yes. you go. Okay. And this girl in the book is Mary Bruno. Yes. And there was so much of, I guess, just you—you—you you, you almost felt like you were attacked. Is that's what I'm reading here? It was just like. She became your tormentor and your demon.
6: Oh, absolutely. And I think in reading the book, if I, certainly if I did enough good, uh, good enough job in writing it, um, that comes across.
1: And there was even times when you felt like you should kill her?
6: Oh, absolutely, yes. Um, not, not that I should kill her, but um, um, I, and I think that is the fine line between between um, uh, um, being a victim and being a, a criminal um, is is that I had another voice that was uh, telling me not to do anything, to uh, to um, resist every impulse, including uh, the impulse to commit suicide.
1: So, how do you feel about this character in the book, uh, the the real life? character in your life uh she's called mary bruno how do you feel about her today
6: um i am past my um my rage my anger um that's again the book was not written to get back at her uh the book was to uh illuminate um because i hear things in the news um about you know Murders and 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 uh, mass murders and and um, you know uh, Ted Bundy and uh, these are people who just really went off um, and and I don't I can't pretend to know why they did what they did but in um, remembering my own feelings uh, it, it certainly my own experience would suggest why uh, some of these people might have you know done what they had done. Um, but no, uh, again, I, I, I got off track. Um, I don't, um, I don't wish anybody, um, any malice, um, including uh, this person I'm, uh, calling Mary Bruno. Um, it's fine with me that she has a wonderful life. Um, I am past my issues now, so, um, I can't, I can't really... Say that I am any longer the victim. I, I have survived it, um, and I would not wish a, a horrible life on myself or anyone else, including Mary Bruno. I hope that it, that answers your question.
1: So, when did this all start? When were you started feeling all this stress? How old were you? Twenty one. Twenty one. And so it's been how much, how many years' journey has it been to finally you saw light at the end of the tunnel and we're starting to be able to, to what, what might be called recover, recovery?
6: I guess I'd gotten into uh, therapy with uh, the individual who actually wrote the forward to the book, and in the book I call Brad. His name is Shadowan Calloway, and he's again he's prepared the forward, so I'm not spilling the beans that way. Um, um, I, if I had a guess, I'd say I started seeing him over the issue um, maybe four or five years after the onset, and um, my my counseling with him probably went um, another ten to fifteen years, kind of tapered off. So. It's it's kinda of like a spongy ending. I, I don't exactly know when um I I you know, I was completely out of it. It's kind of like tapered off. And and frankly when I met my wife I still had um moments when that rage would revisit me. However, it was um uh much much more infrequent uh than certainly than at the outset.
1: This phenomenon called rage you obviously experienced it to a fullest amount would you say i mean it filled you
6: Uh, it was it was all-consuming um i was completely dysfunctional um at the onset of this this episode i was completely dysfunctional um which was kind of tragic because i was starting my third year in college when when this happened um um, I, I just—I was paralyzed. I, I, it was all I could do to keep from um, breaking down in tears constantly, and I had to get through college courses this way. Um, um,
1: and you don't—and did, you—you didn't see that kind of reaction coming.
6: No, I actually did. It was just impossible for me to prevent. I—I hmm. I, I just saw absolutely no way. Out of falling into it, um, I have a, a chapter in the book called The Fall where I saw it um, uh, coming and I, I just didn't know how to get out of it. And in fact, I started seeing um, a therapist on campus um, in that, that uh, junior year in college. I started seeing a therapist uh, right after that Christmas when, when this thing became acute. Um, but, but frankly, the counseling was like a, a band-aid. It, it just, uh, I, they weren't getting to my issues. It almost seemed like they were coaching me on how not to become a rapist or, or a murderer. And, and that might very well be where they were coming from. I mean, I, I certainly heard some of that and that's in the book as well. Um, uh, some of that, um, coaching on how not to act on my, my rage.
1: And also, there's a lot of uh, experiences explained in detail here that uh, were very real to you. Now, there's one in here about the night of terror in which you clung to an ice axe in fear of the approach of a mountain lion. I mean, that's, could, that would send us, all of us, into uh, terror.
6: Yeah, I spend a night like that. That is, that, is, that much I can tell you is not fiction.
1: But that also, that experience though, somehow was related to this Mary Bruno?
6: Um, you know, when when you're in, um, when you're experiencing um, uh, trauma at the level that I experienced it, the, the mind I think does funny things with um, uh, different suggestions, and that suggestion of a mountain lion, um, I didn't, that was not creative writing. That, that, that um, how my mind took that and twisted it was really also um, as I say not creative it, it's, it's that nightmare that I had following that mountain lion episode uh, was also very true
1: how did you come out of this how did you recover and of course and then this does have a happy ending
6: um, 15 years of, of therapy at least hmm. in a nutshell um the key and it it really was a key to unlocking the trauma was that I had to um finally acknowledge that um uh, what had happened to me was in in fact it happened um and it it almost sounds ludicrous to say that, but there was so much denial not on not just on her part and and the part of her family but also on my part as well um i just I just did not want to face that that all of this had befallen um, me and it was all it, it's it's kind of amazing um in as you read the book um how little is discussed and and that note in and of itself uh, was traumatic because uh, that that simple lack of acknowledgement uh was just just very uh, uh, there there's no way for me to to describe i guess that's that's where the title comes from a prison of lies it's it's the, that that feeling of being trapped in the denial and there's like no way of getting a handle on it so i had to my, my getting better was uh, the key to it was my um, finally acknowledging to myself with the help of my therapist that everything I described in the book did in fact happen. I wasn't imagining it. Imagining It It wasn't a, a creation within my own mind. It really did happen. Um, and, um, and I had to realize also that it was not my fault.
1: And the happy ending, your dedication of the book to your
0: wife.
6: Yes. That's a little tip in the beginning. Um, but it, it wasn't... You know, sometimes you can write a story or paint a painting and not get the full meaning until it's done and then you're looking at or examining it and it's like oh I'm seeing things I didn't see before well that's kind of sort of the way this worked out too the the dedication is in the beginning of the book and and that is the book's happy ending that is the tip off that oh well you know everything does turn out well in the end.
1: The title of the book A Prison of Lies we've been listening to Robert Thomas Doran and Bob tell us how to get your book. Oh, um it's
6: avail- th- available through um amazon.com, it's uh Barnes and Noble. Um it was published through iUniverse so you can go on iUniverse's website as well. There I, there is a website in the process of being developed. It should be of um out on the internet in a week or so Um, and that will point you on to ordering the book directly through iUniverse also.
1: Thank you Bob for being with us on iUniverse Radio.
6: Thank you so much, it was a pleasure.
0: iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.